Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his, full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, that is, destroyed or cut off. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sins purged or atoned for. Also, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 14 and 16 through 16. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And finally, Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 12 through 14. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And make straight paths for your feet. So that that which is lame may be not be dislocated but rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Father, we just come before you, and uh, Lord, uh, as we examine this attribute of you, Lord, your holiness, Lord, your purity, your separation from your creation, which is defiled by sin, Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts and pay heed, Lord, to your admonition, that as you are holy, so we are also to be holy. We are to be holy in our conduct, Lord, pure in our conduct, and not allow ourselves to be defiled by this world and the sin which so easily besets us. So, Lord, I pray that you'd anoint these lips of clay, that I might bring forth your message to your people and give us ears to hear what your spirit would be saying to the church, this church, from the pastor on down. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today for our communion meditation, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture which is the prophet Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God. I want to look at it in the, with a view to look at the second attribute of God, and that is His holiness. In our regular messages, I've been looking at praise as a weapon. These weapons allow us to defeat the enemy in our lives, just as we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. It tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, they're not of this world, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And the strongholds are the fortresses that the enemy builds up in our lives because we submit to him in the, uh, the in that we uh, sin. You know, we can't overcome our carnal nature. We can only put it aside. We can't, that I, I shouldn't say we can't overcome it. We can overcome it, but we overcome it through these spiritual weapons that we have. And we can get the victory. How many of you want the victory over sin in your life? How many of you want God to tear down any strongholds that the enemy builds up in your life? The bondages that we have. Okay, that's what this series is all about. And the weapons that we've looked at so far are such things as the Word of God, prayer in the Spirit, 
the name of Jesus and a few others too. And the uh, final weapon that we're going to be looking at in this series is that of praise. You remember we have seen that praise is a weapon. You have the story of uh, Jehoshaphat and the uh, uh, children of Judah overcoming those three armies that were beset against uh, them. And they overcame the uh, enemy by praising the Lord, which confused the enemy, for the uh, uh, spiritual forces that were behind the enemy armies. We also saw another example of that was with Paul and Silas after they had been beaten and thrown into prison for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they didn't sit uh, there in the uh, jail cell and mope about it. Instead, they praised God. They prayed and sang hymns to Him. And God sent that earthquake. And then through that, God used that to witness to the Philippian jailer. Hallelujah. So God freed them. Freed them to go and preach the gospel to others that would not have received it otherwise. Okay, the theme verse that we've used for this series is Psalm 149, verse 6. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. We've also learned that there are two kinds of praise. Spent several weeks upon the first kind, which is thanksgiving. That's where we thank God for what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do in our lives. And the second kind is what I have termed adoration. That is, we adore God for His uh, attributes. We praise Him for who He is. And to do this, I've been going through the attributes of God. And these include, but are not restricted to, His love, His holiness, His justice, His truthfulness, His eternity of being, and consequently our eternity of being too. And in what I term the omni-attributes, omni-referring to all, He's um. Omnipresent, omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere present. How many of you know he's present here in this room right now? Hallelujah. Praise God. He's his omnipotence. He's all powerful. He can do all things. And finally, his omniscience, which means he is all knowing. He knows everything about you. So don't try to hide from him. He knows where you are. He knows what's in your heart. He is all-knowing. And we're going to look at these other uh, attributes more in future messages. Now, I spent three Sundays talking about that first attribute, which is God is love. And I looked at how God is love as testified by three different New Testament personalities. First looked at it from the viewpoint of the Apostle John. Remember, we saw from the Apostle John in his first epistle, particularly the fourth chapter of the first epistle, that God is love. That's an attribute of God. He is love. He is all loving. He loves everyone, no matter who they are. He may hate their sin, but he loves them as a person. And he's created them as a being to bring praise, honor, and glory to him for all eternity. He loves each and every one of us. And that love was especially manifested in that he did away with our sin by his death on the cross. The Apostle John wrote, here in his love... Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory atonement, the satisfactory payment for our sins. Amen? We also looked at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul talked about the fruit of the Spirit. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, so on and so forth. But that primary manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit is first of all love. And that's what he wants us to manifest in our lives too. Love for others. And not just love for those that are our friends and relatives. Love for everyone, even our enemies. And that's impossible to do in the flesh. But through God, when Jesus is living in our hearts, he can love our enemies through us. If we'll just uh, yield ourselves to them, to it, uh, to his leading. And we also looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is the famous love chapter. In verses uh, 4 through 7, he again lists the attributes of this love. Not just the positive aspects of it. Love is patient. Love is kind. But he also listed what is not true of genuine love. It's not boastful. It's not proud. Doesn't envy. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Like I said, that's another list of the fruit of the Spirit. But at the root of that is the attribute of love. And finally, I looked at it from the viewpoint of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we went through what is known as the upper room dis discourse, Jesus' final address to his disciples before he went to the cross and left them here on earth. And he talked about love. And he, again, it is said that this is demonstrated by his going to the cross. He said, greater love has no man than this. A man laid down his life for his friends. Okay, so today, now for the communion meditation, I want to look at a second attribute of God, which is his holiness. And the main scripture that I will be sharing with you is uh, the prophet Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God as found in Isaiah chapter 6 and we're going to look at verses 1 through uh, 7. Now this is similar in some respects to a message that I gave to you uh, back 10 months ago when I was talking about this same vision that Isaiah had and I focused in that message on the verse 8, which is where God spoke after, you know, doing the uh, uh, purging of Isaiah's sin. You know, the uh, Isaiah sees the holiness of God, the glory of God, becomes acutely aware of his sin, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And then his sin is purged by the angel taking a tongue with a tongue, the one of the coals from the altar, and touching his lip, lips. After all that was finished, verse 8 there, you know, God says, Who will go for me and speak to this people, these people of Judah? And Isaiah said, he, like he raised his hand and said, Here am I, send me. And that was the commission of Isaiah's call as the prophet to the nation of Judah, and to us too as well, because his book speaks to us just as much today as it did back then, which was 2,700 years ago. Okay, so that's what I focused on 10 months ago. Today I want to concentrate right now on the first part of that vision, which was the holiness of God as manifested there in the throne room. Now the passage in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 opens with this, verse 1. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, little historical lesson. This is after the nation of Israel split up 
into two kingdoms after the death of Solomon. We've been uh, going through this, uh, you know, on our Wednesday Bible study here. That nation of Israel split up. The ten northern tribes uh, split away from uh, Solomon and the Davidic line that was continued. And uh, the thing about the ten northern kingdoms, they eventually became known as Samaria after the capital that was built uh, called Samaria. And the Samaritan kings, the kings of this nation of Samaria, were all bad. Every single one of them. Not a single one really followed Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of uh, Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of David. None of them really followed him. Instead, they deviated and went and followed the gods of the pagan nations around there. You know, and I was, when I went through the return of the gods, some of those gods were uh, Baal and Ashtoreth and also Molech. And they began to follow these false gods and shunned the uh, God of, uh, of uh, uh, the nation of Israel. On the, uh, in contrast to that, the southern tribes, there was only two of them, the, na the tribe of uh, Judah and the tribe of uh, Benjamin. And the nation to the south became known as the uh, kingdom of Judah. They still followed the uh, uh, Davidic line, but they had some kings that were good and some kings that were bad. Now this king that's mentioned here in verse 1, Uzziah, he was one of the good kings. He had his problems, but uh, by and large he followed the tr true and living God. And be consequently Judah was blessed by God. You know, whenever a king didn't follow after uh, Jehovah, the true and living God, the nation would suffer. You know why this nation of America is suffering today? Because we've deviated from the true and living God and we've begun to sought, uh, follow after these false gods. I talked about this for five weeks in that uh, book, you know, by Jonathan Kahn, The Return of God. We've forsaken the true and living God and we've begun to embrace these false gods. Those false gods never went, really went away because the spiritual forces behind them have always been active throughout human history. Okay, so King Uzziah dies and... Isaiah was probably very much in apprehension. What's going to happen now, God? You know, we've had these, you know, good kings. We've had bad kings. You know, what's going to happen now? Are we going to have a good king who's going to follow you or a bad king? And so he was probably very much in apprehension about this. And it probably caused him to seek God regarding Judah's future. And because of Isaiah's apprehension at Judah's future, God gives him this vision. And you know what God does? He pulls away the veil. He strips away the veil that's separating heaven from earth. And Isaiah looks in and he sees the throne room of God. What does he see? He sees God sitting on his throne high and lifted up. He sees that he doesn't need to be apprehensive about the future because God is still on the throne. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, no matter how bad it gets in this nation now, God is still on the throne. Everybody say that. God is still on the throne. Amen. But you know what? Isaiah sees far more than just what's on the throne. You know what he sees? He sees the holiness of God. He sees the glory of God. 
Verse 2. And above it, that is the throne, uh, the throne of God, stood seraphim. Seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So the holiness of God is the attribute that the seraphim, by the way, don't shy away from that word seraphim. Seraphim are just a particular class of angels. You know, there's other classes too. We know about cherubim. And I, in my opinion, there's, there's you know, a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, classes of angels that we don't know any, you know, uh, we don't know them by name, but they're out there. And I believe that you know, these two, the seraphim and the cherubim, are revealed by God. And he leaves it at that. I think the reason why he doesn't reveal other classes of angels is because he doesn't want us obsessing over uh, angels or demons. You know, we talked about the different classes of demons too. Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in high places. God doesn't want us obsessing about that. God wants us uh, obsessing about Him. Can you say amen to that? Don't worry about the angels. Worry about God. Think about God. God wants to meditate on Him, not the rest of this uh, stuff, which is secondary to the Almighty God. Okay? Now, the holiness of God is the attribute that the seraphim wanted to draw Isaiah's attention to. Hallelujah. What exactly does holy mean? Have you ever thought about that? If I would ask you, each of you right now, uh, give me a definition of holy. You might say uh, it means purity, sinlessness, cleanness. You know, the, uh, Thai, that's what the uh, Thai word uh, for holy is, borisut, what it means. It means purity. Now this is true, but it's only part of the meaning of holy. Holy in the New Testament is the Greek word hagios, which means to set apart. So when we say that God is holy as his attribute, we mean that he is set apart. Or if you will, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other than his creation. Why is that significant? It's because since the fall of man, God's creation is defiled by sin. Every one of us are defiled by sin. That's the way that we are born. We are born unholy. That's why we need to be born again so we can be set apart for God and his service. Okay? So God is completely separate from his creation, which is defiled by sin. In this, then, is the difference between the Judeo-Christian religion, which has a completely different concept of God than Eastern religions. You know what Eastern religions believe? They believe in what they call pantheism. Pantheism means all God. In other words, everything is God. The stars in the heaven are God. The moon, the sun. That's what they believe. That's God up there. No, it's not God. God is wholly other than his creation. The earth is God. His pulpit is God. I'm God. You're God. This is what they believe in Eastern religions. Pantheism. So, in other words, creator and creation are one and the same, but we believe that they are completely separate. They are wholly other than each other. That's the concept of God that we have. And this God is purity and creation is defiled. And so we have to choose 
to become holy and set apart from, uh, with God. Now, related to that world, uh, that word holy is to sanctify. You know, the Bible says that we're sanctified. We're to be sanctified. We're to be set apart from this world. That's exactly why John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We're not to love the world because the world is defiled now. It's the same root word, to sanctify or to be sanctified. That's the verb, whereas holy as... The, the word holy is a, uh, uh, by itself, is a noun or an adjective, a holy God. Again, it means to set apart certain people or objects. You know, the objects that were used in temple worship were to be sanctified too. They were to be set apart for worship or service to God. And that's what we are to do too. We are to be sanctified people. We worship God now. We don't worship the things of the, the world. We're to be in service to God and not service to the things in the world, including serving ourselves. That's what selfishness is all about and making yourself out to be God when you're not God. Amen. Okay, now notice... Isaiah's reaction at seeing this holy God. Verse 5. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. That undone there means destroyed or cut off. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah sees the true and living God in all his glory and all his holiness, his purity and undefilement by sin. And you know what happens? His first reaction is he became acutely aware of his own sin, his own sinfulness. And he cries out, I am undone, I'm destroyed. You know, he fully expected to die at that very moment. When he stood there in the glaring light of God's holiness and glory. And so it is with us. Whenever we may be exposed to God's holiness, his glory, his light, his truthfulness. You know, these attributes are all really interrelated uh, our reaction would be the same thing as Isaiah's was. And I've told you before, you know, if Jesus suddenly appeared in all of his light, in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, every single one of us in the, this room would be instantly down upon our knees before him. We would be able to see ourselves as he sees us. So what happens next in Isaiah's vision? Verse 6 of Isaiah 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sins are purged or atoned for. Now the main thing that's noteworthy about these two verses is that Isaiah could not purge himself of his sin. You see that? He couldn't do it himself. In this case, and undoubtedly at God's direction, one of the seraphim with a tongue took a coal from the altar that was before God and touched his lips. That was, by the way, his lips represented, you know, the, the things that he spoke about. You know, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the mouth, uh, abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you speak evil, it's because that evil originated in your heart originally. 
And so this is what he became acutely aware. So, we cannot purge our sins ourselves. God has to do that for us. Meaning that we cannot save ourselves through our good works, brothers and sisters. Never think you can save yourself by your good works. You know, and this is what really rankles unbelievers. Number one, when you tell them that Jesus died for their sins, they don't like that. Because they don't want to admit that their sin is so bad that it caused the death of someone. And not just anyone, but the death of the very Son of God. They don't like that. They don't want to admit that. And number two, they don't like to admit the fact that their good works are not enough to make them righteous before a holy and just God. And so what's involved there is genuine pride. They want to be able to, if they, they even believe in an afterlife in a heaven, they want to believe that they, the reason why they got there is because they were good enough. But they're not good enough. No one is good enough. That's why Jesus had to die for our sins. So the meaning for us is God's salvation. This is what it means to us. This accepting of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins leads to a right relationship with God. It's, it is called being born again. The words that Jesus used in John chapter 3 when speaking to Nicodemus. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot even perceive the kingdom of God. It's not just a matter of going to heaven. You cannot perceive the, the, uh, the this, is, this is a thing too. You know, so many people say, well, I read the Bible, but I don't understand it. Well, the reason why they don't understand it is because they cannot see, they cannot perceive the kingdom of God. You've got to first really accept Jesus Christ and then the word of God will make sense to you. You'll be able to see into that spiritual realm. And how, how is it that you're born again? Well, Jesus Continuing down in that uh, chapter on being born again, verse 14, he said, As Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What's he talking about? He's talking about his crucifixion. That whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in that sin sacrifice, shall be saved. And he got, goes on and says, For God so loved the world that He gave, gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. But first you've got to trust in that sin sacrifice. And when you do that, then you've been born again. But this is only the, this by the way is a... Uh, uh, theologically called justification, whereby the sinner is declared righteous before a just and holy God. And Paul talks about this in, at length in the book of Romans, also Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians too. Over and over again, he talks about being justified by faith. Trust in God for the sin sacrifice that he provided for you. But this is only the first step. The second step is for that newly justified person. Uh, he or she needs to actively turn away from sin in repentance. And the theological term there is called sanctification. Set apart, being set apart to live a holy life. And this sanctification is a lifelong process. Justification is a point in time where you trust in Jesus 
to purge your sin because of his death on the cross. But sanctification lasts a lifetime. From the moment you're justified, you should be moving towards that sanctification, becoming more and more holy each and every day. And then at the point of death, then you will be ushered into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk a little bit about that uh, more later. Okay. Now, you look at what Peter has to say about this sanctification process. He says, as obedient, that is, you obey God. You shun sin. You put away sin in your life. You're to be an obedient child of God. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. You put away sin in your life. And you've got to choose to do that every day. That's what Jesus meant when he said, pick up the cross. Amen? Pick up your cross how many times? Daily. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. You pick up your cross on a daily basis. Not just the daily, you don't do it just when you wake up in the morning. And although every one of you should do that. The first thing you do when you wake up, when you open up your eyes each morning, is you say, God, I'm going to pick up my cross. I'm going to live for you. And it's not just what you do first thing in the morning. You have to do it. It's, it's an attitude. It's not just uh, daily, it's hourly, it's minutely, it's second, every second you should have that attitude of surrender to God. And that's what picking up the cross, we've, we've talked about this before. Picking up the cross means to live a life of deep surrender to God. Where you choose for God and you choose to turn away from sin. Verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1, because it is written... Be holy. Every one of us is to be holy, for I, the Lord God, am holy. Other places that you see this, uh, you know, I could, I could spend a lot of time on this. In fact, I don't think I'm going to be finished with the topic of holiness after uh, uh, just today. Holiness in the book of Hebrews. The Christian is repeatedly enjoined in Scripture to live this holy life. He has been, he or she has been set apart from this world at the very moment of salvation. And he or she is to live like it, forsaking all the sin that defiles his or her life. The Christian is to be holy too. That, uh, you know, we, we, I mentioned that uh, holy, when you say God is holy, it means holy other, holy separate. And now you're to be wholly separate from this world too. You're to be wholly submitted to God. And at times this can be rather discouraging. Especially when, you know, uh, the person seems to be bound up by sin. Maybe one particular sin is continually dogging him or her. And these are what, what I was talking about, the strongholds spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And the writer of Hebrews offers this word of encouragement. The writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, lift up the hands which hang down. Hands to hang down. You know, that to me kind of speaks of discouragement. Oh, I don't know if I can make it, you know. Uh, this is just so tough to live this Christian life. Paul, the writer, writes, lift up the hands that hang down. Lift them up. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Don't get discouraged. The surefire, you know, cure for discouragement is to lift up your hands and begin to praise the Lord in your life. That's what this series is all about. Praising God because He is strong. You are weak, but He is strong. 
That's what that the little uh, song that we learn in Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Amen? And the feeble knees. The feeble knees. What's that speak of? Speaks of uh, walking with the Lord. What's Isaiah 40 verse 31 say? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall... Somebody help me here. Walk and not faint. Okay? They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And that's why, you know, the writer of Hebrews, is, he's encouraging them. You can do this. You know, lift up your hands. Praise the Lord. Let him strengthen your feeble legs so you can walk and not faint. Verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet, so that which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Jesus is the divine physician. Not talking about being physically lame, it's talking about being spiritually lame. How many out there feel like you're spiritually lame? Let him strengthen you. Renew your strength by waiting upon the Lord. And now here it is here. Verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. You want to see God? You got to learn to live that holy life. And rely on Him. He will strengthen you. Okay, I'm almost finished here, and then we're going to get into the uh, uh, communion service. God's final warning to all of us. Revelation 22, verse 11. He who is unjust, let him un be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy... Let him be holy still. You know, I was drawn to that passage many years ago. In fact, by my calculation, it would have been maybe uh, 60 years ago. I was uh, uh, in junior high at the time. And I remember being drawn to this scripture. I didn't, I didn't completely understand it at the time. But look at it this way. You know what? There's a finality to that statement. Amen? God is saying, it's there in, in Revelation 22. What's Revelation 22? Who knows what Revelation 22 is? It's the last chapter in the Bible. Amen? So we're talking about the consummation of all ages. The end of all things. And what this scripture tells me is whatever state a person finds themselves in at that point, it's going to continue with them throughout eternity. What you are at that point will remain for all eternity. You know... Um, I've got this friend, I, I went hiking with him a couple of times this past week, talking to him about spiritual things, kind of tried to lead him in the uh, sinner's prayer, and he just wasn't quite ready yet. He wasn't ready to confess that Jesus had died on the cross for his sins. And I got that far in the sinner's prayer that I was trying to lead him in, and he just couldn't do it. But you know, he's really searching and he's really opening his heart up. 
He's about a year older than me, so he's 73 now. He's getting up there in years, and he's, I think he's doing a lot of reflection on his life and really determining you know, how he can be holy and righteous before God. And he, the second uh, hike that we took uh, before we started out, he gave me this book. It was called uh, Return from Tomorrow. And it's a story of this young man. He was only 20 years old at the time. And uh, he was about ready. He was in basic training. This is right in the middle of World War II, you know, 1943. And he was about ready to, uh, uh, you know, go from the basic training. And he was going to go back, uh, you know, his basic training was in Texas. He was going to go to uh, Virginia where he had been accepted in this program to educate him as a doctor. You know, this is middle of World War II, you know, when they really needed doctors. So uh, he had just demonstrated an aptitude for it. And suddenly he turned up sick just a few days before he was ready to leave. And he was all concerned about that. His temperature, you know, he had the flu or uh, pneumonia. And his temperature went back to normal. He thought, goody, goody, I'm going to be able to go. But then suddenly he took a turn for the worse. And his fever shot up to 106.5. And you know what happened to him? He died clinically. And this is a a near-death experience. All of us have probably heard of near-death experiences before. And in this near-death experience, uh, he felt him, you know, he, he wanted to go there to Virginia, and he felt his spirit going, trying to go over there, and then he realized he didn't know how to get there, so he returned back to the hospital room where his body, you know, was. And he saw his body, you know, the sheet pulled over it. And he was then became aware that, hey, I'm dead, you know. And as he thought about this, suddenly there was a bright light right next to him. And it grew brighter and brighter and brighter. And then the light spoke to him and said, stand up, you're the, in the presence of the Son of God. And so he knew it was Jesus. And then Jesus started showing him different things, you know. Took him through his life. He asked him, you know, glaringly, what have you done with your life? And he says, well, you know, I did all these things, you know. I was an Eagle Scout. And Jesus says, you did that for your own glory, not for me. Really heavy stuff. And then Jesus took him to other things. He showed him, you know, places like a bar where uh, people are, you know, they're trying to, and, and a lot of the, the spirits, you know, in, in, you know, disembodied spirits, they, they were trying to get another drink, even though they couldn't touch anything. Showed another one where people were consumed by lust. And that's all they can think of. They've never changed And so there's that finality right there. You know, whatever state you're in, the state of lust, the state of alcoholism, the state of drug addiction, whatever, you're going to stay in that state for all eternity and never get any kind of satisfaction. So the big lesson for us, brothers and sisters, is what is consuming us? Are we bound up in some kind of sin? Now, in this passage here, I want you to notice this. There's two pairs in this verse that are polar opposites. First of all, he says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. What does unjust mean there? Well, to me, you stretch that out. It means unjustified, never having been unjustified. What's the opposite of being unjustified? It's to be righteous. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. I want to be righteous, amen? I don't want to be unjustified. And then, 
says, he who is filthy, filthy with what? Does that mean when you die, you haven't taken a bath? No, it's not talking about physical uh, dirt. It's talking about the filth of the flesh, which is sin. He who has not put away his sin, let him be filthy still. And that's the, the very opposite of that is to be clean, to be pure, to be holy. You see that? So, the thing that I want to apply here is we need, once we're born again, once we are declared justified, we need to submit ourselves to God and He will give us victory over the sin in our lives. You know, because He loves you too much to abandon you to that sin. Maybe you're plagued by some secret sin in your life that nobody, maybe nobody even really knows that about you. Do you want to continue in that sin? Do you want to completely give yourself over to it? That sin will destroy your life. And bring about an eternal separation from God. So get right with God. Decide once and for all. You are going to put away that sin. And live a holy life. Sanctified to Him. You can allow Him to make you victorious. Because you can't overcome it on your own. There's just some uh, sins that are just too deeply ingrained. We can't do it on our own, and we have to come to Him and say, God, I can't overcome this. I need you to give me the victory. Okay, I'm finished now. So let's talk about communion. Uh, if you would uh, come forward here. Uh, well, not, not just yet. Uh, uh, we'll just wait a minute. Um, I always tell you when we have these communion services, brothers and sisters, that the purpose for communion is twofold, right? Number one, it is to remember the Lord's death until he sins. It's remember the Lord's death on behalf of our sins. With the bread, both the bread and the cup, the Lord said, this do in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians chapter... 11 verses 23 through 25 and the Lord Jesus on the same night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me then we read in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, Paul then added in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Second of all, purpose of communion is to be a time when we closely examine our lives for sin. And to see how committed we really are. And if we fall short in other, in either uh, commitment, we are to make new commitments to him at this point. Paul further wrote there in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 31 and 32, For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But if, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. The th thing that I want us to ponder this morning here, brothers and sisters, is this thought. How's your holiness? Remember the writer of Hebrews wrote that we're to pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So how is your holiness today? Are you becoming more holy each and every day? Are you growing more and more 
And it's not just your love for Jesus. You should correspondingly be growing more and more in your hatred for sin. And less satisfied with allowing it to remain in your life. That's what becoming holy, your holiness, really means. And if you feel like you're falling short in this matter of holiness, now is the time to make it right for the Lord. So with that thought, uh, Freddie and uh, Sarah, if you would uh, come forward here and we'll pass out the elements. And we're going to play a little song as uh, they pass uh, the elements out. And this is called The Lord of Lords. I want everybody to listen to the words closely because the words there explain exactly how you can become holy. And then towards the end of the uh, uh, of the song, he talked. Uh, the uh, uh, singer talks about being holy. Okay, if you would cue that up, uh, I love this song here. Behold his beauty. Get your eyes on him. To worship you, Jesus, is my soul desire. For this very heart you have shaped for your pleasure. Purpose to lift your name high. Here in surrender, in pure adoration, I enter your courts with a
Beautiful song, amen? Has so much meaning into it also. It's how we can become holy when we cry out to Him for holiness, faithfulness, and righteousness. Verse 23 of First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord which, uh, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night he, which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had gave, given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Everybody partake now. Verse 25. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Hallelujah. This covenant is the new this this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Amen. Father, we lift up to you the cup here. We pray for your blessing to be upon it. And Lord help us to remember what it represents. It represents your precious blood that inaugurated the new covenant. Lord, even as your word tells us that if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, keeps on cleansing us. Thank you, Lord, for the blood that you willingly spilled out there on the cross for the remission of our sins. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody partake now. <coughs> Father, we just come before you this morning and we thank you, Lord, for what you did for us. Your blood was shed for our justification. And Lord, it not only justifies us, but it sanctifies us. And Lord, it gives us the power to overcome sin in our lives. Lord, there are so many Christians out there that want the justification, but don't want any part of the sanctification. And we as a church affirm today, Lord, that we want to be sanctified. We want to be separate from the things of this world. Lord, even as that song said, uh, uh, let not the things of this world ever sway me. We'll run until we finish the race that you have given us. And so, Lord, help us to run that way, that uh, direction of sanctification and becoming more and more holy, even as you enjoined us that we are to be holy because you are holy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, prayer request. Pray for Dolly, because uh, Dolly's very sad at uh, losing her dear friend. And again, we're trusting God that uh, she made the decision somewhere along her life, and that one day we're going to see her. Dolly's going to see her again, and we'll all meet her for the very first time. Uh, pray for my friend. Uh, his name is Dave Parker. Again, I had a couple of really good conversations with with him, and he's really searching. He's leaving in two days to uh, fly to Thailand, where he's uh, uh, engaged to be married to one of the women over there 
who herself, you know, recently became a Christian. You know, I think she became a Christian maybe about uh, four years ago. I think it's been four years because uh, Dolly and I uh, met her at uh, the church where I used to minister at in uh, Bangkok when I was doing missionary work. So uh, he needs to be, make that final step. I'm going to call him up today. You know, in, in that book, it, it, uh, Jesus brought that young man that, uh, you know, had this near-death experience and brought him to the place when he, you know, he was 20 years old at the time that he had this near-death experience and brought him back to the time when he made a commitment. He walked down the aisle and uh, to the altar and gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was saved at that point, and Jesus reminded him of that commitment at that very moment. So I want to, you know, I'm going to talk to Dave tonight. I want to point that out in the portion in the book. So anyway, pray for him. His name is Dave Parker. Pray that God will give him traveling mercies and have his will, you know, whether he uh, goes on ahead and uh, marries this uh, young lady. We're trusting that he, you know, it's going to happen. Okay, 